All right, we're in a series now called Important. Important. That's code, if you understand anything to do with coding. I had limited scope in that. But whenever I used to put that, insert that code into a, into a website, what that means is that what you, what's between these brackets now is this reality is more important than the reality before and after. It take, this takes precedence. And when we approach Scripture, um, all Scripture is true. But if I can say provocatively, not all truth is created equal. There are some things that take precedence because they go beyond context. Some things in Scripture are contextual. Some things like the Psalms aren't taken to be read in a theological way. They're, they're an outpouring of the heart, even though there is theology in there. And Jesus quoted the Psalms as well. But there's a lot of um, training that goes into how do we interpret, how do we read Scripture, and how do we know what is prioritised and what is beyond context and what is absolute truth all the time, everywhere. And so um, last year we began working through a, a, a journey called The Story, and I was just sharing with the church last week, uh, I wanted to go through the New Testament using The Story as well, but I was getting frustrated because it was skimming over everything at the same depth and going from front to back very quickly, and there were some key elements of Scripture that I want to highlight because these are, these are important, these take Precedents, these are important to all of us all the time and they impact our life every single day. And I wanted to grab those passages and just work through um, in, a, in a, almost an exegetical way chunks of Scripture that are really important and just bury ourselves there for the day. It's interesting, surveys have said globally now that people, um, we've come out of the 90s and the, and the noughties where, where a lot of preaching was topical and people would say, here's what we're teaching on and we'll grab verses from everywhere that back that up. And uh, I was never a great fan of that, I've got to say. I, I, I found you can easily grab a scripture out of context and do that. I much prefer to grab a passage and say, what does it really mean to us? Let's bury ourselves there and do that. And so I want to really for the rest of the year with some mini-series probably interspersed within there, just stay on the important stuff in the New Testament and really root ourselves in those things that really matter. And so last week we looked at Romans chapter 8 or a section of Romans chapter 8 and we look, the reason why it was so important all the time is that describes to us the relational uh, paradigm at the heart of Christian life. Because religion, it, we defer in our, in our religion to becoming a rules-based moral framework of how we should live. But Paul just goes to exhaustive lengths to illustrate that it's relational, not rules. It's not about the rules anymore. The rules have been completed. In, it doesn't give us carte blanche permission to just go out and live anyway, but, but the relationship that we have formed through the cross of Christ gave us access again as prodigal sons and daughters to come back to the Lord. And the qualifier to be called a, a, a child of God and a co-heir, the qualifier for that was not your performance. It was the presence of God's spirit in your life. That once you, you are adopted into his family, his spirit dwells in you and that identifies you as part of God's family, therefore a co-heir with permission and, a, and a, an allocated level of status and maturity and identity that says you are a co-heir, you can go out and spread the family business. So we saw Romans 8, 14, we summed it up, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. So he, he grabs those two elements, the spirit and identity, one forms the other. It's not based on how good you perform. And this is coming from a guy who was a performer, Paul. He performed better than anyone in a religious sense. He says, I had to wipe all that out. It took him 14 years in his own little wilderness experience to reframe his whole idea of what life with God looked like. 
And he does a parallel in, in uh, Galatians 4. And I use the Net Bible, NET Bible, because I just love the way they've, they've translated some of these words. He says, God redeemed us so that we may be adopted as sons with full rights. So we are sons with the full rights of sons. It's, it's like we were, we were never not sons. And sons is a positional term, not a gender term. And because you were sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your heart who calls out Abba Father. And he goes on to say in both of those passages that, that when we act from the flesh, when we act from the stuff of who we are, and this is vital for today's message, when we act from the substance of life, and that includes our default personality, our, our, um, uh, the, the restrictions of our physical being and so on, that when we operate from the flesh, we are regarding ourselves again as what Paul would describe as underage. He says you've come of age in your walk with God because of the presence of the Spirit and you live from the Spirit. So he defines spiritual maturity in terms of how's that relationship going, not how are you sticking to the rules. He's saying how is that relationship going, how much are you living by the Spirit because that defines in New Testament terms how mature you are in God. We think the grown-up ones are the ones who behave the most. He's saying that's not necessarily the indicator. They've just taught themselves how to, how to be an imitation of a good person. They're acting it out. But the true measure is what's going on inside the heart and how much you're living from relationship, not from the rules. So I know you're probably getting sick of me saying those words, but it's, it's fundamental, intrinsic. It's the way we need to see our paradigm of Christian life. So he talks about these things. He says, adopted as sons with full rights. Full rights. What does that mean? What are the rights that you have? Well, these are the rights that come with identity, and the identity comes from the relationship. So they're the rights of sons. Again, ladies, you're sons too. Guys, we're the bride of Christ. We've got to come to terms with all these sorts of things. So when I say sons, I'm meaning children, male, female, all the same. But we have rights of sons, and a son in the New Testament is talking about one who's found maturity, who is a co-heir who can go out and build a family business. Sons is an indicator of spiritual maturity for us. So we have the full rights of sons. Now those rights are things like your identity, who you are. So if you source your identity from your flesh or from the world and the substance of the world, you're living as someone who's underage in Christ. He's saying you become a slave again. You become um, not a son anymore. You're not living as a son. You're, you're living as, as an alien again. Why would you contemplate doing that? So our identity comes from this relationship. And with that identity comes security of life, status, importance, and the unquestioned right to be present in life. Now, if you get your security from anywhere but Christ, this won't be your reality. And so you, you still retain the right to choose the way that you think. So you can think as a slave or you can think as a son. But it, the way you think and your mind in a spiritual sense, is the most powerful tool in the spirit that you have because your mind is the gateway of which kingdom you're obeying at that time. Am I going to live from the flesh or am I going to live from the spirit? And so he says, if you're underage, you'll be living from the flesh. Your flesh will say, what colour shirt have I got on? Does that matter? Does that make me look better to you today? How's my haircut? What's left of it? You know, am I physically appealing to you? Because in the world, credibility comes from appearance. There's a lot about the way I conduct myself which will give away or earn respect. Like clothes introduce a person, don't we? We say that, we, we judge people, we sum them up by that. But my identity does not come from the flesh. The most impressive people I've, I've met wear the daggiest clothes. 
carry the most authority, who see miracles every single day of their life, and yet you wouldn't know them from a beggar on the street. In heaven, they're incredibly famous. They're, they're living from a completely different identity. They're living from the rights of sons. The rights of sons are the protection of the family, not protection from the world, protection through the world because the identity is something that's coming from inside. There's provision, the provision of the family, the inheritance, the sufficiency of Christ in your life. Think about again, remember last week if you were here, all the things that echo of the pains of our life that come from when we've, we've ceased to get our meaning and our security and our identity from God. We've now gotten it from the world. And when those things go away, so does our security. Things like purpose, significance and so on. So his inference there is that we are not sons when we act from the flesh, only when we act from the spirit. We have the positional right of sons, but we can, in practice we can live as if we're not sons. Okay, so those rights are ours and they remain. They're the full rights of sons, but we can choose to live from them or not. So let's get to the scripture of today, which is John 10, 10, just one verse. And I'm going to clothe it in, in its own context. But this is important. John 10.10 is incredibly important because we get confused whether God is for us or against us. Life confuses us because life doesn't go our way and we attach life with the reality or the identity of who God is. So John 10.10 is going to start to make this crystal clear in a way that's almost offensive. I offended a number of people over the weekend. We, in a good way, in the end it was, but it was confronting. The confronting starkness of the simple reality of God's heart towards you and how it is separate from the way the world around you treats you or is broken. John 10 is important because we sometimes attribute the work of the enemy as being the work of God. And this completely alters what we have faith in, who we have faith in and why. John 10 is important because it reveals concisely God's motive and his mission for you and I in this world. Okay, so if you can put it up on screen and we'll just have a look at the context of, of John 10.10. 10. Jesus is giving uh, an allegory. He's talking away and he's, he's calling himself a number of names. He's creating a picture of the shepherd and the sheep. And he's, he's, there's characters in there. There's a shepherd, there's a gatekeeper. And he's saying essentially there's no legitimate way into God's pen, so to speak, in his illustration, except through the gatekeeper. And once you're in, the gatekeeper also becomes a shepherd who looks after you. So he says, I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and they will go out and find pasture. But, and here's the big one, he introduces a new character in the play. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life. So he's drawing a, a, an absolute stark black and white. One is the antithesis of the other, the anti of the other. So one is black, one is white. Make no bones about the simplicity of this statement and what he's claiming here. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So he's saying, Jesus, I'm the gate. Jesus is the gate. I'm the way into There is no way to God through your own works. The flesh won't get you there. It doesn't matter how impressive you are. You won't get there unless you place your faith in Christ. Take that to the bank. He's also saying, I'm the shepherd. Once you're in the pen, I'm the one who actually sustains you as well. But then he brings this other player in that he's called here the thief, the one who takes away. He's speaking directly here about Satan. We know it by, or him by that name, Satan. And Satan, in Jesus' worldview, which we inherit with him, is that Satan is the anti-father. He is the anti-God. But let's be clear there, when, when we say that, 
It's not a competition that says dark competes with light. He's not saying there's no war in heaven where God's wringing his hands and going, I hope I win this one. It's, there's no fair fight here. Satan compared to God is just a, a flick away. There's, there is no battle as far as the battle is ours to fight and we fight with the power God gives us. But Satan is no threat to God. He's a created being. He has limited resources. He fades. The further he gets away from the glory of God, the weaker he becomes. We wear him down. You know, resist the devil, Scripture says, and he will flee from you. Man, he's gotten so sick of fighting me over the years, he just gives up and finds an easier fight somewhere because I have no limit to the glory in which I can stay. I can be as close to God as I want all the time and that glory just feeds me all the time. The anointing can't. He doesn't get that. I never run out. He does. He'll pick an easier fight somewhere else. But he is the anti-father. In, in the Latin language, it was dis pater, the anti-father, in, uh, also called rex infernus, the, the, the god of the underworld, the god of uh, dark fire. It was a parallel to the Greek word for Hades, the, the similar lord of the underworld. And Jesus is saying, this is who I'm talking about here. But it's not a competition. I am light, he is dark, but wherever there is light, there can't be any darkness. But he sets him up and says, here's what he is about and here's what I'm about. Whatever I'm about, he's the opposite. He is the opposer. He is the destroyer. So whatever the Father wants to give you, Satan's mission is to tear that away. That's why this is important. What Satan's tactic is to take away your identity, your, your purpose, all the things that come through relationship. Satan's agenda for your life is to distance you from God by distancing you from relationship. So he's happy for people to be religious. Not a problem because it's nothing to do with relationship. He'll bog you down in busyness and trying to keep the rules, shame, all the stuff, feeling guilty. All He'll keep you busy with that and he'll be fine with that because it takes you away from the one thing that matters, relationship with God, because everything that matters comes from that relationship. He'll use distraction. He'll use all sorts of things. So God is not the only spiritual force at play in your life. There's a wind of God's spirit blowing that we can catch there's the wind of the evil one, which we can choose to catch by the way we think if we come into agreement with him and want to live from our flesh. So both can be ignored, both can be denied, but we cooperate by either living from God's spirit or living from the flesh. So Paul goes on just to reference again in Galatians where he's talking about, he says, so also when we were under age, that's that term I'm using, we were under age because we're not living from the spirit. We were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. I'm not going to read the, the next passage that's there uh, and just for the sake of time, but this is key. When we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. It's an interesting term. The thief has come to steal, kill and destroy. How does he do that? He uses the elemental spiritual forces of the world. A fascinating term. What are these elemental? It's the raw stuff of life, he's saying. This fleshy world, it's our limitations, our physical limitations. It's this broken world that we live in. It's relationships that are hard and, and all the stuff that goes, it's a world that's fallen, all that kind of thing. It's people, it's circumstances, worldly thinking, it, and it's also spiritual influence. And combine these all together and Paul says these are elemental spiritual forces. They're, they're tools that he uses to rob you of life and distract you from relationship. So he comes to steal, to kill and destroy. So to steal, let's break this down just a minute. To steal means to take from you what is yours by the full rights of being God's son, God's daughter. 
So he steals that. He takes it from you. You have the right to have it, but he steals it from you. How can he do that? He can only do it if you give him authority to do that by living from the flesh, not from the spirit. Because all the full rights come from living from the spirit. You see why I, I prattle on and on and on and on about the importance of life in the spirit. People have asked, why do you keep talking about this? Because it's actually the only thing that matters in your Christian walk is how to live from God. Because as soon as you're not living from God, you're living from the flesh and you're competing yourself up then against Satan who uses all those things to come against you. So the only way to live in victory is to live from the Holy Spirit. If there's only one thing we ever teach in church, it should be how to, don't worry about keeping the rules. You'll do that if you're living from the Spirit. It's learning the skills of living from the full rights of sons and daughters. So this includes your identity, your protection, your provision, your purpose. So being the dispater, this word dis, you'll see it right through all the things that seem to matter and break your life down and hurt you. Disapproval, disconnection, being discredited, being dishonoured. What are they doing? They're, they're stealing from you your identity because you're not approved anymore. You're not connected anymore. Someone's discredited and dishonoured you. We've torn you down. We, are, we, we use this like a spiritual gift. We think this is just Australian culture. Let me dishonour you. Let me tear you down. Let me have a go at you. Why? Because you're my mate. You can take it. You know I'm kidding. It's just because I love you, right? No, we're tearing down. We're partnering with Satan when we tear people down. It's dishonouring. We, we shouldn't be tearing anyone down. Even as a joke, just lift them up. Find the gold in them and boost that. We need, we're, we, life is hard enough without us tearing each other down, without picking at things and, so, and dis, dishonouring us and bringing us down. Protection, words like disarmed, disrupted, or that, which means a broken heart. It's stealing from you the protection that's supposed to come from the Father. Disappointed, disinherited, that's a robbing of provision. He robs you of purpose, being discarded, discouraged, discontent, displaced. Are any of these sort of ringing in your belly? You think, man, I know what that feels like. That's what happens when we, are, we make a choice to live from the world and therefore give authority over to the Satan to fight us at that level. He steals what is ours by right. He steals and he kills. To kill means to remove life essentially from that which is already living. He wants to remove life from you. Just as God breathed breath into you, Satan wants to take the breath out of you and at this exhaustion that we feel in life, to remove life from the living. It might be from your hope for life. It might be from your health. It might be from your relationships. Whatever it is that brings you life, Satan wants to bring death. He wants to kill that. This is why Paul again in Romans 8 says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And there is, there is life. Jesus came to live, bring life. Satan came to bring death. Steal, kill, destroy. To destroy simply means to dismantle unto destruction, to, un, to have something that's unable to be rebuilt anymore. It's not just to pull something apart, it's to annihilate it. It's to, it's to dissolve it to dust again. And I wonder if you've ever experienced this in life. I certainly have a number of times where the, the, something in the external, my career or a business or a, or a house or something, whatever it would be, you've, you've spent years building this thing that matters to you and yet it becomes unraveled and, and life finds a way to destroy it. Could be a ministry, could be all sorts of things that we, we hold valuable. And you realise, man, where am I getting my identity from right now? Where am I getting... Because you know, the world has taken this away. Is it something that God gave me or is this something I've created for myself? 
And so you get left sometimes wondering because life in the West can be easy at times, not so much at the moment, but compared to other cultures, very easy still. And you, and you realise, wow, where is my identity coming from? Where's, where have I been sourcing my purpose? Because it's so easy for me to become hopeless. It's so easy for me to become depressed and down because I'm sourcing all the things that really matter from the world and not from God's spirit. The fascinating thing is with all this that Satan wants to pull down and destroy, what I love is the unfairness of the fight because God is so much bigger than all of this. And yet God doesn't always restore that which has been stolen or killed or destroyed. He doesn't always restore it in the way or the, in, the, in the matter or the substance with which it's been taken away. He didn't promise to do that. Relationships end. Sometimes there are necessary endings. Businesses come and go. Houses come and go. Life and superannuation, finance, all these things come and go. And he doesn't promise to restore them for like because he's not interested in competing and going tit for tat in this thing. He promises to restore the life that it stole because his promise to you is life, not the stuff. But if, if the world or someone has stolen life from you, he's right in the business of giving you life again. But he's not constrained by the amount of life that you've lost. He's, he knows no limits. If Satan takes one out of ten, God will give you a hundred. There's no limit to what he brings. There's no, there's no equality in God versus Satan here. I'm going to get to the, the core of what this word abundant life means in a moment. But we need to understand, we don't need to look to the past in too much detail to say that's what my future needs to look like if God gets it right in my life. He's going to give you so much more than that because what he wants to give you first is life. Sometimes it's a renewal of what's gone, but it's always something that is new and brings you life. So the lesson here is that it's our relationship with God that is a source of life and full rights. Satan's strategy is to steal and kill and destroy to by, by breaking down that relationship and breaking down him as the source of our life. I'm going to cut through a little bit of peace there, whoever's doing the overhead, and, and move on to John 14. See, see, Jesus' redemptive solution in this is that the relationship that he wants you to live from is permanent. I've come to give you life. So what does he do? He wants that relationship to be intrinsic fabric of your life. How can he do that? He couldn't do it while he was on earth. Sin was still a problem. Jesus was one person. How does he solve it? By having him indwell in you all the time and stay there. I will ask the Father, he said, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. Huge word, vital word, because the orphans are the ones who live underage and from their flesh, who, who the dispater, the anti-father has torn down their life and they've robbed them of identity, robbed them of protection and provision, all that kind of stuff. He says, I'm not going to leave you like that. I'm going to come to you. You'll never be orphans again. You'll always have a father. I love Genesis 3.15 where it talks about this battle between um, us with Satan and then God's plan for our life. He's, he's talking to uh, the serpent who's just blown the whole deal with Adam and Eve. You know, he says, I'm going to put enmity, I'm going to make enemies between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. And the picture here is that the, 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 the little snake, the snake was biting at the heel. So like, ouch, 
This is how it's going to roll. He can bite all he likes, but the same heel that he bites is the heel that's going to kill him and destroy him. And this is the mantle that we have as full with full rights of sons and daughters. That which Satan has tried to rob you, we can crush him with that same heel. The same thing that's been robbed of us becomes a thing that makes him redundant. Come on, mate. This is, we're going to get happy in a minute. See, if you want to know what your plan for your life is, have a look at what Satan has stolen from you. Because that's the very area where life is going to come the most and it's going to be multiplied, not tit for tat. It's going to be one to a thousand, one to unlimited. What can this look like? The thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. And that word full, I, I was under a misconception about this. I've had a breakthrough this week. I've got a new favourite word in Greek. It's perissos. It's the definition of what this word to the full means. I thought to the full you know, you have a bucket and you fill it and it's full. I thought, oh, he's come to have life and give it to me so the bucket is full. That's nothing like what it means. We actually don't have um, words that we are willing to accept that interpret this word well. I look it all up in the commentaries and, and, all this, and the commentators, the stuffy old commentators, struggle to talk about this word and give it context that you and I would believe. So they, come, they boil it down to words like this. This is stuffy old commentators. To the full means super abundant, excessive, violent, beyond measure, overflowing, exceedingly. That's all they say. It's nothing to do with being full. It's like, keep the top off, baby, because it's pouring through and it's going everywhere and it's never going to stop. I've come to give you life that spreads out and screams to the world. This is what life looks like. Oh, I'm a Christian. <laughs> you can be like me. You were supposed to be the ones, woo! That, that is our heart. This is the life that should scream out. Not the religious ones who go, why does that man make funny noises? Doesn't know we're supposed to be dignified in church. You know, <laughs> if someone laughs, if someone twirls, we had a weekend, it was just been fantastic, about 130-odd people. There were flag-waving daughters of Israel right through the building. They were just going, it was, it was chaos. I'm not much of a flag-waver, hey, but I do, I do love seeing people just break out with joy and just get happy. And remember, my identity doesn't come from this rubbish that I, is my experience of life. It comes from this experience of life that knows no limit, that can always overcome, always overcome Peace is always available. Joy is always available regardless of the nonsense of this world. And it is so much nonsense, isn't it? It's so hard sometimes, but only if we rely on it. And so he promises abundant life from wherever he finds you today. He's not restricted and not defined by what you lost or what was stolen from you yesterday. Wherever he finds you, there he leads you into abundant life. And it's gained through relationship. He isn't restricted by the past. He's not reliant on your uh, previous dedication to trust him, it's, it's all about where are you now. It's, it's like I used the illustration on the weekend, God's uh, heavenly GPS, which I know I've used before. He says, where are you? Where have you gone? Have you gone off track? Are you stalled? Has life treated you badly? Has it all fallen apart? He says, wherever you are, I know where home is. Turn left now. We're coming home. We're coming home. And he never, ever relents because he knows how this story ends in your life and he can't be against his own plan. His call on your life is irrevocable. He can't change his mind. He knows where he wants, you to, take, wants to take you and his resolve is to get you there. 
So I just wonder in life, where, where have you felt like Satan has robbed you? Do you feel like it's, it's um, inevitable? Do you feel like that's it for you? Do you feel like it's gone, life's been hard, this is how I define my story now, there's no coming back for this, or maybe at best God will take that level of darkness and give me the same level of light. Has identity been stolen? Has hope, has joy gone, relationships gone? Whatever it is, it's all going to go one day anyway. But this life that he promises, are you willing to exchange that for this? Because it's real. He says it's uh, love and peace that's beyond understanding. I love the Greek in there. You know, I'm a a bit of a nerd with Greek. Sandy Bickerton's inspiring me into this stuff again. But these these words for to know something, and there's two Greek words. One was oida and one was gnosis. And oida means I know something. It's like you tell me God's true. Okay, I I think that's true. I believe that, oida. And And the scriptures say, well, the devil has that knowledge about God. He believes in God too. But that knowledge doesn't transform. The knowledge that transforms is gnosis knowledge. And to know something that can't be known is a, is a play on the Greek words. It's, it's to gnosis what can't be oida. It's to, because exp- gnosis is an experience. It's, and it's often formed and it's dynamic and it's moving and it's changing. It's a knowledge that's real because it's a knowledge that I've experienced. See, in the West, our idea of what is true is defined almost 100% by what we can explain. It's got to be in written form. There's got to be research behind that. Only that which is qualified is true. We're the only culture that does that on earth. Every other culture takes that as well and adds it to my personal experience because my experience is what is true as well. Whereas in the West, we discount that and we say it's only what I can prove. But gnosis knowledge is that which is true plus that which I experience. And it puts it together and goes, this is life-transforming knowledge. And this is the knowledge of God that he draws us into. It's like Adam, the uh, King James Version says, Adam knew Eve, knowledge. That's what it is. I know, I know this God and I know this peace. It's beyond understanding. My brain can't get there because my brain is flesh, my soul, my will, my emotions. But my heart is spirit and God is spirit. So I can know in a gnosis way that which my mind can never understand because I'm a son and I'm coming home and so are you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. What can we say? The full rights of sons. We haven't earned it. There's nothing we can do to disearn it. There's nothing we can do to gain more. It's not because of us, it's because of you. What can we say? Where else can we go? But Father, all we can do today is just thank you that this isn't a theory, this is our life now. At the end of the day, Lord, and the beginning of the day, it's all we have is you. But what else could we possibly want? So Lord, I wanna pray into every heart right now that has experienced the stealing, the killing, the destroying of the thief. Father, I pray for each heart that suffered brokenness, hopelessness, destruction, insecurity, anxiety and depression. And we speak Jesus 
we speak life because your word is creative. Your name is a creator. And so we speak that over this situation. And Lord, I pray and we declare right now as a congregation in unity and faith that for everything that the evil one has taken away, let that snip of the heel be the same heel that crushes his head. And we invite the blessing of God, the abundant life that overflows and pours out. And we say yes and amen, because that's our responsibility in this. That's all it is. For all the promises of God, Paul says, all we need to do is say, yes, Lord, we believe. Amen. So be it. That's our role. So we say yes and amen to your promises for peace, for love and for abundant life. And I pray that your healing would go into every place in our hearts that are scarred from the traumas of life, from the effects of the evil one working against us. And Lord, I pray that you would not only restore, but you would multiply the blessing for everything that's been taken away, Lord. I pray that you would multiply it a hundred and a thousand fold of abundance of life. Lord, where there is now lack of relationship, Lord, will you bring great relationships? Where there's a lack of resources and money, Father, will you bring an overabundant supply? Where doors are closed, Father, bring open doors. Where there's any sense of lack, Lord, bring an awareness of abundance. Because you have no limits and your promise always stands. And so we stand in that promise in Jesus' Name. Thank you, Lord.